0: listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter and this is part one of a series in 2nd Corinthians. 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll pause there just for a second after verse 2 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, uh, I have to confess that this book, 2 Corinthians, is a book that I've been spending quite a bit of time in recently and thinking quite a lot about. And that's because uh, the ministry that I'm primarily involved in is called Living Leadership. And in Living Leadership, we support Christian leaders and their families. And I find 2 Corinthians a wonderful book to go to with a Christian leader whenever I'm mentoring them, that I can uh, read this book with them and reflect on it. In fact, I'm going to be writing uh, over the period of this next year, a series of blog posts from 2 Corinthians based on little statements that the Apostle Paul makes uh, that I'll use under the title, um, Things Pastors Don't Say. Because this is a, a very personal letter. It's probably more personal than any of Paul's other letters. He expresses his heart. He, as he says in the letter, he, he lays his heart open to these Christians in Corinth. And his reason for doing that is because he's concerned that his relationship with them is under threat. There are a group of so-called, he calls them super apostles, people who claim to be apostles of Christ Uh, and to claim that the evidence that they are genuine apostles is that they have a powerful ministry. Uh, Whereas Paul confesses to the Corinthians that he is weak. They know about his suffering and his suffering uh, is is something that he, he doesn't try to hide. And he says rather than thinking that his weakness and his suffering disqualifies him as an apostle, it is the very mark or a mark Of genuine Christian ministry. So in many ways this letter is a defense of Paul's apostleship. You'll see that as we go through it and as we uh, remember that it's important that we kind of put a little warning sign that we're going to have to think carefully about what things that Paul says uh, could only really be said by an apostle of Christ. Uh, I am not an apostle of Christ. I don't believe any leader today can claim that title. The apostles of Christ were people appointed by the Lord Jesus from among those who had lived with him, who had seen him, uh, who had seen him after his resurrection, had received his teaching directly. The one exception to that was the apostle Paul, who, as he describes in First Corinthians 15, where I believe he calls himself the last of the apostles. That's one way of reading what he says there, and I think it's the right way, um, but certainly Certainly, in First Corinthians fifteen, he says he was born out of due time. He was created as an apostle unusually, not in the in the way that others had through being with Jesus before his death, but through what the Lord Jesus taught him and revealed to him when he encountered him on the road to Damascus. So, Paul is an apostle. Uh, The other uh, apostles of Christ. Uh, also met that criterion and therefore when we're reading what Paul says we're going to have to ask at times is this how an apostle is described or is this a description that could apply to all Christians or even to all Christian leaders. Now even if we decide that some of what Paul says is describing only the apostles there are still principles that we can learn for Christian service, Christian ministry, particularly Christian leadership. And I hope that we'll see those as we go through. Uh, And that doesn't mean that if you're not a leader, this book isn't for you. There's a lot that Paul says that's relevant for everyone. But also, even if you're not a leader, there will be leaders in your life. There will be the people leading your church uh, or other Christian organisations that you're involved in. And you might learn from this book how you can support them and care well for them. Paul opens the letter with a reasonably standard greeting. He calls himself an apostle by the will of God. And he says, I'm Timothy, our brother. And notice that Paul does not call Timothy an apostle. Uh, Timothy was a second generation leader. He was uh, someone who was developed by the apostle Paul as a trusted co-worker. Uh, He had been a young man when Paul first met him. Uh, And we read about Timothy quite a lot in both Acts and also in Paul's letters, especially, of course, the letters Paul wrote to him, which we call 1st and 2nd Timothy. But although Timothy was a fine Christian man, outstanding amongst Paul's companions, one of the most faithful of them, perhaps even the most faithful, Timothy is never called an apostle. Uh, And that in itself should help us to see that The title of apostle is only used for those appointed directly by the Lord Jesus. It cannot apply to people in subsequent generations of the church. If anybody deserved to be an apostle, it was Timothy or anybody was suitable rather um, to be an apostle. But anyway, Timothy is not an apostle. Paul is. And he says to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. So the region of Achaia of which Corinth was the chief city is in Paul's mind. Uh, And that gives us some sense that the churches in New Testament times, although they were uh, local congregations, if you like, in each city, in a city, in a larger city, there might have been multiple house churches as part of that one church. But there was also some sense of collaboration between churches in a wider region. I suppose what would eventually become the, uh, the system of dioceses that you find still in Anglican church systems today. Um, that's not the only way to envisage that. And certainly in the New Testament times, it was not a hierarchical system. It wasn't the kind of uh, system of regional diocese with regional bishops. That didn't come until later. But uh, the idea of churches working together in a region, having good fellowship and connection together is there in the New Testament. And it's something that we should value today as well. Gospel partnership might be one way to describe that or a, a local church fellowship or, or some kind of network of churches in a, in a city or a region or an area. And Paul wishes to the Christians in Corinth grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 2. Now notice again that Paul routinely puts the Lord Jesus on a par with the Father. If the Father is the source of grace and peace, so too is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is this closeness that, of course, uh, reflects Paul's belief, which is more explicit in some other places that Jesus is is one with the Father, that Jesus is God, and the Father, Son, and Spirit working together. And the gifts that they bring to God's people, well, the blessing of peace was a familiar blessing to the Jewish people. Shalom Alechem, In Hebrew, peace be with you, or in Arabic, which is a related language, Salam Aleikum, um, peace be with you. But it's not only peace, but grace, That's a beautiful Christian addition, Uh, not just wishing peace, but recognizing that God's peace, God's shalom, the fullness of life that God gives. That's really what peace, uh, as it's described in the Bible, is. It's not simply that you're not at at war, you're not fighting, but it is uh, harmony and blessing and a fullness of life that comes through the grace of God towards us his merit towards us that is not, uh, his favour rather towards us that is not merited, his gracious outpouring of good gifts upon his people. So through the grace of God, we can know the peace of God. Now let's read on then in verse 3 of Second Corinthians chapter 1. If we are afflicted it is for your comfort and salvation and if we are comforted it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken for we know that as you share in sufferings you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant brothers of the affliction we experienced in Asia. so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. We'll pause reading there after verse 11 of Second Corinthians 1. Now Paul opens this little section by giving blessing to God. You see this often in Paul's writings that his heart gets caught up in praise of God and worship of God. Sometimes he breaks into prayer, sometimes statements of blessing to God. He is ascribing glory to God. He's giving God credit for who God is, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. That's a beautiful little way to describe who God is, isn't it? That mercy is in the very character of God. We've mentioned already in verse 2, the grace of God that pours out unmerited favours upon us, gives us gift upon gift the mercy of god is is his pardoning uh, pardon towards us in christ the fact that he forgives us for our sins the fact that he is patient with us he doesn't punish us in the way that we deserve and these ideas of mercy and grace are very closely related if you like mercy has more of an emphasis on what god does not give us that we do deserve he doesn't punish us according to our sins Grace is more to do with what God does give us that we don't deserve. But in a sense, there there is an overlap between the two. They belong together. The father of mercies is a way of describing the generous heart of God. He is a good father, a loving father. That's how the Lord Jesus described him when he taught his disciples to pray. You can read about that in Matthew 6 and then on into uh, the rest of that Sermon on the Mount that surrounds Matthew 6, he, he was presenting God to his disciples as a good, loving father who wants to give good gifts to his children, who knows what they need before they even ask him. He is the father of mercies. that's his character, and the God of all comfort. Again, that's a beautiful statement, isn't it? This This God, this father... Uh, And the fact that he is both father and God is precious, isn't it? He is not uh, only our father as a, you know, our earthly fathers might love us a lot, but they they don't have the power to do everything that we might hope they would do or to give us every good thing. But he is also God, our creator. But likewise, he's not only God, the creator, uh, who is powerful. He is a good and loving father. And this God of all comfort, this Father who loves us, this merciful God, is the God of all comfort. He is the one we can look to to comfort us. He is the one who is compassionate towards us, who holds his children closely in his embrace. He's the one who will comfort us in his love, in his assurance of his goodness and of his faithfulness to us. That is who God is, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. And because that is who he is, the Apostle Paul can testify, verse 4, that God comforts us in all our affliction. In all of our sufferings, God wants to bring us comfort. In all of our affliction, particularly Paul seems to have in mind opposition for his ministry of spreading the gospel, um, then then God will bring comfort to him. God has brought comfort to him and God will bring comfort to us too. Your affliction might be different than that. It may be that you're not facing opposition for your Christian faith, but it may be that you're facing another kind of affliction, a a struggle with your physical or mental and emotional health. A relational breakdown, a betrayal or a breach of trust. Uncertainty about your finances. Difficulties in your workplace. Whatever your affliction is, your father loves you and he will bring you comfort. That's what Paul is saying that God had done for him. But he does that and I love the way Paul puts this in verse 4. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. Our Father comforts us. He assures us of his love. He reminds us of his presence. He gives us his great and precious promises. Why does he do all of that? Well, of course, it is for our good and for our comfort, but also that through us, others might be comforted. Because God reminds me of his love, I can remind others of his love. Because God has given me his promises, I can pass those promises on to others. Because God assures me of his constant presence, I can go and be present with other people to remind them of him. It is from our experience of God's comfort and care, that we can go and care for others. So there's a a particular encouragement here for those of you who are involved in pastoral care, perhaps in a formal role in the church. What you are doing as you do that is bringing to others the comfort that God has brought to you. More than that, of course, you're bringing God's truth to them as well. But it may be that you're not in a formal pastoral care role. But what Paul is teaching us is that whatever affliction we experience, one of the good things that God will bring through that, which is not to say that the affliction itself is good, but one of the good things that our good God and Father will bring through it is to give us an experience of His comfort that enables us to comfort others. Paul continues in verse 5 he says as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. That was Paul's experience as he uh, as he went through opposition, as he uh, was attacked and persecuted for the gospel perhaps even by Christians and even by, by the kinds of people who he's concerned about in this letter super apostles who were acting out of rivalry. People who claimed to be Christians but were not in any sense, acting in a Christian way towards him. But Jesus suffered all of those kinds of suffering, didn't he? His ultimate suffering was at the hands of the Pharisees, religious hypocrites, and Judas who betrayed him, and disciples who fell asleep and ran away rather than standing with him. But throughout his suffering, as he died on the cross for our sins, he suffered that hostility from human beings open opposition from those who were clearly opposed to god hypocrisy from those who claimed to be close to god uh, betrayal by one who had been close to him and disappointment with others in all of this in all of these afflictions in all of these sharings in christ's suffering so paul says through christ we share abundantly in comfort too and is a beautiful statement and Paul could testify to it. I can testify to it as well. I've come, gone through some very painful experiences in life. Even betrayals by people who I had loved dearly as a brother or sister in Christ. But I can testify to the fact that in the midst of those sufferings, God was very near. In the midst of those sufferings, the word of God took on a deeper, richer colour i could see the promises of god i drew closer to the lord jesus i could feel his heart for me and my heart began to stir with compassion for others even for those who had wronged me that's a work of god by his spirit that's what god wants to do in us if we will turn to him when we are facing affliction and suffering and opposition Paul goes further again in verse 6. He says, if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. What does he mean by that? Well, I think at one level he's saying that the reason Paul is facing opposition is because of his ministry of spreading the gospel, the gospel that he had shared with the Corinthians that had led to their salvation, to their faith in Jesus. Paul will not run away from affliction because it means that the gospel is being spread. If we're going to be faithful to god if we're going to share the gospel message faithfully if we are going to live in full obedience to the lord jesus there will be opposition but also there will be there will be the comfort of god there will be the work of god done through us the gospel will spread to others others will be encouraged and inspired by our example And so we have to embrace the sufferings of Christ for the sake of the gospel. But I think Paul is saying again that because of what he is learning about the comfort of God, it will make him able to comfort them. They experience comfort when they patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer, Paul says, the rest of verse 6. In other words, this is the Christian life suffering for Christ is part of the journey but as we suffer and Paul will say this that he is confident that they will know the comfort of God but one of the ways they know it is through the letter that Paul is writing to them and this is the beauty isn't it that as we remind people that God will comfort them our reminder becomes part of God's comfort Paul, of course, in a very profound way was writing inspired scripture words that God had given him and was guiding him in. I can't say that about a WhatsApp message or an email that I might send to someone to bring them encouragement. But what, what I can say is that when I remind them of the word of God, whenever I remind them of his goodness and faithfulness, whenever I even show them a little bit of kindness and love, then I am pointing them to him. I am reminding them of him. I'm encouraging them to find comfort in him. And Paul, verse 8 says, we don't want you to be ignorant brothers or brothers and sisters of the affliction we experienced in Asia, the the Roman province of Asia, which is part of what we would call uh, Turkey today. You see, Paul could have tried to cover up the opposition and the struggles and the suffering that he experienced. He could have you know, minimised it. He could have tried to leave it out of the record. He could have just told them about all of the successes that he had. But as we see in the book of Acts, where Luke, Paul's friend, records Paul's journeys, and as we see in Paul's letters, Paul doesn't do that. For Paul, suffering and affliction is not something to try and explain or to be embarrassed about, as if when a Christian suffers, it's somehow an anomaly or something unusual. No, Paul knew that the Lord Jesus had told him when he called him to be an apostle that he would suffer. He would suffer opposition. He knew, I presume, that the Lord Jesus had told the other apostles in the upper room, as we read about it in John's Gospel, chapters 15 to 17 uh, or uh, 14 to 17. Jesus said in the world you will have trouble. You will face opposition. That's part of of being a Christian. It is part of being a faithful servant of God. And the fact that the super apostles tried to deny any suffering and to avoid any suffering was evidence that they were not genuine Christian ministers. Paul doesn't want them to be ignorant. In fact, look at the words that he uses to describe it. We were so Utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We felt we had received the sentence of death. Think about that. Paul is describing a degree of pressure where he literally felt like he could not continue. Not only that he couldn't continue as a minister of the gospel, but that he couldn't even continue to live. He would have prepared to die knowing that death would bring him to the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul talks about that desire later on in 2 Corinthians to be away from the body and present with the Lord. So we'll come back to that. It's not a a morbid death wish. It is a longing for heaven. And if you have faced affliction, particularly I would say the points in my life when I have faced opposition and, and affliction, from people who professed to be Christians, who I had loved as brothers and sisters, those are the points above every other point where I cry out, Lord Jesus come, take me to glory, take me to heaven. I want to get out of the complexities of this. I want to be away from this sorrow that this brings day upon day to my heart. It's the lament that you read about in the Psalms or in the book of Job or in other places in the Bible, in Lamentations, that that world weariness. And the Apostle Paul was experiencing that, or had experienced it. And it's okay to experience that. That is not a sign of defeat. It's not a sign of unsuitability for Christian ministry. In fact, it's a good sign. Why? Because Paul continues verse 9, he says that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I love that statement. The God that we serve and that we worship is not only able to deliver us from the afflictions of this life, he can raise the dead. He will raise the dead. He has raised the dead. The Lord Jesus, who faced such affliction from people, was raised glorious to new life eternally by his Father, vindicated by the Father. We too who face affliction and injustice in this world will be vindicated by our Father. We will be raised in the resurrection life to live forever with him. There is nothing that we can go through in this life that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, to quote Paul from Romans 8. And so we can entrust ourselves to him. He, Paul says, delivered us, verse 10, and he will deliver us. And on him we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. But I think you need to notice that's in the context of what Paul has said, that this is God who raises the dead. The ultimate deliverance that will come to us is when we are raised, resurrected, when Christ returns or after we have died and we are resurrected. Now that is important because the reality is that this side of 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 eternity, you will not always have justice. God will comfort you, but he will not always deliver you. There will come a point And there has come a point for some Christians when the opposition of others has led to their death. It is still the case for many of our brothers and sisters globally today that they are under threat of that level of opposition. There also are points where a Christian who is serving God faithfully will lose out in this world because of their faithful testimony. They may even lose out in so-called Christian settings because of their faithfulness to the word of God if other professing christians do not act justly it is ultimately in the resurrection that our hope is for the ultimate deliverance god may deliver you now in this life he might vindicate you he might put right what has been done wrong he might remove the affliction for you from you he might carry you through to a better place But eventually some affliction will come that will lead to death, even if that's not opposition, even if that's a a, a physical illness in your body. But God will ultimately deliver us again. And that is where our hope is. And so Paul says, lastly, in verse 11, help us by prayer. I love that. Paul is still struggling he wants to bring comfort to the Corinthians that's why he's writing to them but he also wants them to pray for him don't ask me how the prayers of God's people make a difference but it's very clear here and elsewhere in Paul's writings and elsewhere in the New Testament that when we pray God works God chooses to work through our prayers And so it's not, I'm not saying that if you don't pray, God can't do something. He can do it without you if he wants to. But God has has made it such that as we pray, we are used by God. We join with God. We are caught up, if you like, with God in the spiritual work that he is doing. So pray. If you know a brother or sister who is afflicted, pray for them. If you are facing affliction. Ask others to pray for you to sustain you so that the work of God will continue and many will give thanks on their behalf. When people join with you in prayer the blessing granted us through the prayers of many the blessing that would come to Paul would enable him to continue in his gospel ministry and therefore those who prayed with him have a share in that ministry and in the blessing of it.